saving me from hitting the deck. Whoa there, he said. Keep it together, O'Shaughnessy. Stay with me. I fought to regain control, but I couldn't make my arms and legs work. My heart worked, though. It worked overtime. It beat so fast, it threatened to overload my system, like a penny stuck in an electrical socket. You stood up here for ten minutes before you remembered you were two stories up, Simon told me. That's lesson number one. Distraction. We have to find something to distract you. Here. Do sums with large numbers. That'll keep your mind occupied. What's 67,821 plus 91,725? Math already paralyzed me when I had my two feet on solid ground. I closed my eyes and teetered. All right, all right, not math, Simon said. Come on, then. Tell me a joke about what prats the English are. I'm sure you have hundreds. I shook my head to clear it, but that just made me dizzier. All I wanted to do was to curl up into a ball and pass out. I leaned into Simon, and he had to fall back against a chimney to keep us standing with his sprained ankle. Right then, Simon said. Here's another one for you. An Englishman, a Scotsman, and an Irishman meet a magical fellow at the top of a tall building. The wizard tells them that if they jump off the building... Whatever they say while they're falling will appear at the bottom. So the Englishman, he jumps off first, being the bravest of them, of course, and he yells, Pillows! And he lands on a big pile of pillows. The Scotsman jumps off next, and on the way down he yells, Hay! And he lands in a big pile of hay. Last up is the Irishman, but he trips on the edge of the building right as he's about to jump, and as he falls, he yells, Oh, crap! I laughed in spite of myself. There we go, Simon said. You hate the English, right? Of course you do. You're Irish. So every time you start to lose control, you think of some insult to throw at me, whether I'm there or not. That'll give you something else to focus on. It was a good idea, but I was too far gone. My stomach heaved. I leaned over and threw up my breakfast and collapsed into a heap on the rooftop. Simon slid down with me. Well, we'll just have to keep working at it, won't we? He sat with me while I thought to stay conscious. So, funny story, he said. I'm deathly afraid of something, too. And you'll never guess what. A scream of swifts. Birds, Simon said. That's what I'm afraid of. Birds. I looked up at him. Bombs and anti-aircraft tracers still flared and boomed all around us, and Simon didn't bat an eye at them. But he was afraid of birds? My hand to God, Simon said. Birds frighten the pants off me. One bird I'm all right with, though I'm still not a fan, but get a group of them together, all lingering about in a tree or on an electrical wire? He shuddered. A murder of crows kills me. A pandemonium of parrots makes me panic. A bevy of quail makes me quail, which is ironic, don't you think? Seeing as how the birds and I both love to fly. 
I once almost crashed a de Havilland twin-engine mosquito just trying to get away from a row of geese flying south for the winter. I chuckled. My father was a hard man, Simon said, his eyes on the bombers in the sky. Solicitor, very serious, didn't take it lightly that his son had some irrational fear of a bunch of birds. Told me the best thing for it was to confront my fear head on. So one evening he took me up onto a rooftop, much like this one, and stood me on a chimney. He told me it was to get used to birds. What he didn't tell me was that the chimney was full of swifts. I sat up and wiped my mouth with my sleeve. Have you ever seen swifts emerging from a chimney, Michael? At a precise time each evening, they burst forth from the chimney where they nest, like water from a garden hose, hundreds of them at a time. They battered me, clawed me, flapped their terrible wings in my face as they hurtled by. I was absolutely surrounded by them. I tried to leap away, but my father grabbed me by the shoulders and held me in place, made me stand there and be swarmed by them. The idea was that by facing my worst fear, I would just get over it. There was a haunted look in Simon's eyes now, and I knew he wasn't joking about any of it. It sounded silly to be afraid of birds, but a real fear, a real phobia, was a serious thing. People without one couldn't understand. Simon worked at steadying his breathing. Was he doing sums in his head to distract himself? Whatever he was doing, I gave him the time and space to do it. Didn't work, of course, Simon said when he had recovered a little. I think I can confidently say it made things very much worse. So I won't be dangling you off the side of the building in case you are wondering. But confronting your fear in a controlled situation and learning to deal with your responses helps prepare you for the big ones. To that, I can attest. Small steps, Michael. Small steps. All around us, the Allies pounded Berlin, leveling the city to rubble a little more. So, ready to try again? Simon said at last. I think the Yanks will give us another hour or so's privacy. I took a deep breath and nodded. Did you hear the one, I said, about the Irishman, the Scotsman, and the Englishman stranded on a desert island? The Edelweiss Pirates The afternoon after the air raid... A dark black cloud hung over the bombed-out city. Gray ash still fluttered in the air like snow. Tumbled bricks and broken furniture filled the streets. Hitler youth boys and aging air wardens were already hard at work, spraying water on the flames, tossing rubble into wheelbarrows, and stacking up the bodies of the people who hadn't made it to the air raid shelters in time. More Hitler youth stood guard over shops and banks, a little boy in gray trousers and a little gray coat sat on a shattered roof timber, clutching a teddy bear and crying softly. He couldn't have been more than four years old. A girl from the Bund Deutsche Metro, the girl's version of the Hitler Youth, came and collected him. There was no sign of his parents. It was a scene that had played out the day before and the day before that 
than the day before that. Except today, there was something new. I stopped in front of a crumbling wall and stared. Down with Hitler was painted on the wall in big red letters. Beside it was written, The High Command Lies, Down with the Nazi Beast. And underneath the words was a little painted stencil of an Edelweiss flower. Edelweiss is a mountain flower with white petals in a kind of star shape around a yellow fuzzy center. The stems and leaves are fuzzy too, and they grow pretty close to the ground. The Germans and Swiss and Austrians were mad for them because Edelweiss only grow in high altitudes where other plants can't grow. Survival of the fittest, flower style. Tough, but pure. That made them holy around here. So holy that they were claimed as a symbol by both the Nazis and what passed for the resistance in Berlin. The Edelweiss pirates. That's what they called themselves. Kids the same age as the Hitler youth who didn't agree with Hitler and the Nazis. Like the real Edelweiss, they grew up in a hostile place that was always trying to kill them. They were dropouts from school, from the Hitler youth, from society. They spent their days avoiding the SRD in cafes and beer halls, smoking cigarettes and playing pool and making up funny lyrics to Hitler youth songs. They let the air out of car tires, stole bicycles, picked fights with the Hitler youth when they caught one of them alone. But ever since the defeat at Stalingrad, the pirates had gotten more serious. Now they were coming out during air raids when hardly anyone else was around and painting anti-Hitler slogans all over the city. If they weren't careful, they were going to wake the sleeping bear. But I was glad somebody else was doing something to fight back. A real Nazi. The next morning, I made a detour by Fritz's house on the way to school. Most of the buildings on his street were still standing, and red and white flags with big black swastikas hung from every windowsill. Some people may have agreed with the Edelweiss pirates, but they weren't brave enough to show it. Fritz came to the door when I knocked. I hoped he would invite me inside, hoped I might get a chance to snoop for the blueprints of Project 1065, but he told me to wait on the front step and came back with his rucksack and his little sister. Her name was Lena. She was ten years old, wore her blonde hair in braids like every other girl in Berlin, and was dressed in the uniform of the junior BDM. A blue skirt, a white blouse, and a honey-colored jacket. Lena froze when she saw me. She stared at me with big saucer-shaped eyes. What? I asked her. But Lena didn't say anything. She kept staring at me with those big round eyes as she followed us to school. Your sister is creepy, I told Fritz. I know. She's a goofy dame. I shot Fritz a sideways look. Goofy dame was more English slang, like gumshoe. I didn't want to scare him off, so I didn't say anything about it. But I filed it for later. So... Do you still want to join the SRD? I asked Fritz. The Hitler Youth initiation was in three days. Fritz nodded. I don't know if I'm going to make it, though, he said. I'm not strong enough, not fast enough, not tough enough. Well, maybe we can help each other out, I told him. 
I want to be in the SRD too. I hated the idea of being in the junior Gestapo. Hated the thought of marching around in jackboots and spying on my neighbors. But if it meant staying close enough to Fritz to get to the jet fighter plans, I'd do it. We can train together. I can help you get stronger, teach you to fight. And maybe you can help me get over my fear of heights for the test of courage. It's a deal, he told me, and we shook hands. To beat Hitler, I was going to have to become a real Nazi. Seat meat. You're in my seat. Fritz and I had just sat down at desks in our classroom. Another boy named Willie stood over Fritz, demanding he give up his desk. Willie was bigger and stronger than Fritz, but then every boy in the class was bigger and stronger than Fritz. Fritz started to get up, but I caught his eye and shook my head. If he was going to learn to be tougher, he was going to start right now. Fritz froze. I could see the fear, the doubt, pass over him like a cloud. But he really must have wanted to join the SRD bad. He slowly sat back down in his seat. His eyes lowered. I said, "You're in my seat," Willie repeated. He gave Fritz a slap that made his head turn. "Suck him," I whispered. It was English slang, but Fritz understood. Fritz clenched his fist. Screwed his eyes shut and swung. He landed a punch right to Willie's gut, doubling him over. You little runt! Willie cried. He threw himself at Fritz, and they tumbled into the aisle. Hit him! I told Fritz. Kick him! In seconds, the whole class was there cheering them on. None of the rest of them cared about Fritz or Willie. They just wanted to see some blood. It was hard to watch. Fritz was a terrible fighter. He flailed about, hardly ever landing a punch. I think he may have even hit himself in the head. I wanted to pull Willie off him to do the fighting for him, but that wasn't going to teach Fritz anything. What is this? Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher cried. He pushed his way through the watching boys and grabbed Fritz and Willie by the ears. Fighting. Always fighting. That's all you monsters ever do. It's what you're bred to do—to fight and die for your fuel. I blinked. Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher wasn't saying anything we hadn't heard before. Half the stories we read in our primer were about German boys who fought and died for the fatherland. The very motto of the Hitler Youth was "We are born to die for Germany." But there was something in the way Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher said it, like he didn't believe in what he'd been teaching us anymore. Like maybe he never had. Sit down, all of you. He flung the two boys away so hard I thought he was going to rip their ears off. I had never seen Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher this mad before. Fritz slid back into his seat, and Willie slunk away. I was worried Fritz would be upset at the beating he took, but when he turned to look at me, his eyes were alive, and he was grinning wolfishly. He was drunk on confidence. Even though he'd taken a beating, he liked the feeling of fighting back. 
Sit down and shut up, or I'll beat you until you can't sit down, Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher said. A boy in the first row sneezed, and Melcher gave him a wicked smack with his ruler. I was so startled, I sat up straight in my chair. Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher had always been snappish, but this was different. I could feel the atmosphere in the room grow colder. The eyes of the boys in the class grow narrower. They were monsters, all of them, and monsters didn't like to be bitten by other monsters. Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher began class by handing back essays we turned in a few days ago, titled "The Educational Value of the Reich Labor Service." Boring. There was a lot of grumbling as people got their grades this time, though. Mine was a D. I blinked in amazement. I'd never gotten such a bad grade on an essay before, mostly because I copied all my essays straight from stupid Nazi propaganda, just like I'd done for this one. Giving me a D on words I lifted right out of the German newspaper was like Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher saying he disagreed with the official party line. And he did not want to be admitting that in front of a class full of boys who made it their business to rat people out to the Gestapo. There were a lot of questioning looks between the boys before Melcher told us to open our biology textbooks to the next chapter. The page had a picture of a healthy Aryan man with good posture standing next to hunchbacked, ugly-looking Untermenschen. Subhumans like Jews, Poles, Russians, and Africans. I slid down in my seat, ready for another ridiculous lecture on the superiority of the German master race. I had what the Germans would call good Sitzfleisch. It literally translated as seat meat. It meant being able to sit through something long and boring, as if you had a big padded butt. But today's lecture wasn't boring. In fact, what Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher said had all of us sitting up in our seats. Culture destroyers. I knew something was up when Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher told us to put away our textbooks. We don't need these things, he said, dropping his in the waste basket. That caused more looks between the boys. We know the truth, don't we, students? Air Professor Doctor Major Melcher said. Tell me, what does the ideal Aryan look like? The perfect example of the master race. Aryan was Nazi code for Western European white people, of which the Nazis were the perfect example, of course. Boys raised their hands and gave the answers that had been drilled into them. Aryans had blonde hair, blue eyes, square shoulders, smooth, straight noses, square jaws, above-average height, superior strength, intelligence, and agility, with pure Aryan ancestors as far back as six hundred years. Good, yes, Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher said, like our beloved Fior. Yes, the Aryan ideal. He pointed to the picture of Adolf Hitler on the wall behind him. Our Führer, who has dark hair and dark eyes, whose nose is bulbous, who is short and never takes physical exercise, and we 
Austria is his grandfather from? Czechoslovakia, perhaps? Poland? He has never told us. Hmm. So perhaps not the best example. You could almost hear the classroom gasp. Was Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher joking? It had to be a joke. It was no secret that the Fuhrer didn't match the Aryan ideal that he'd gone to war to defend. But no one talked about it. To speak of it in public was like saying the Emperor wasn't wearing any clothes. It just wasn't done. But Melcher wasn't joking. I could tell, and so could the other boys. I felt as though I could hear the heartbeats of every boy in the room but mine slow to a cool, calculated thrum. They were trained to be on the lookout for dissenters, people who didn't agree with the Nazi party, tuned in like the special radios the Nazis sold that only picked up German radio stations. But Ziffior is exceptional, Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher said, and the room relaxed slightly. He could still get out of this if he praised Hitler and went back to teaching the party line. Surely the other Nazi leaders are true Aryans, he said. Herr Himmler, head of the SS. Short-sighted, dark hair, dark eyes, no chin, nose like the beak of a bird. No, perhaps not. Propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels then. Short of stature, sin, acne-marred face. Ah, and that club foot. Hardly the Aryan ideal. Can anyone think of a Nazi leader who does match the Aryan ideal our young men are fighting and dying for? No? Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher was met with a wall of silence. The boys sat watching him the way hawks stared unblinkingly at their prey. The only time I'd been more frightened for another person was when I'd seen the Jewish man being beaten on Kristallnacht. I was sweating and shaking as though it was me up there in front of the class, digging a grave for myself. It was like a nightmare I couldn't wake up from. I had no idea what had happened to Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher, what had made him change his mind, or finally tell us what he'd always secretly been thinking. But if he wasn't careful, he was going to end up in a concentration camp. Remember what we learned last week? Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher went on. Every race in the world can be sorted into one of three categories. Culture founders, culture maintainers, and culture destroyers. Aryans, of course, are the culture founders and maintainers. Every great advancement in the history of mankind has been made by Aryans. Like paper. Ah, no, wait. That was invented by the subhuman Chinese. Gunpowder, too. The radio. No, an Italian. The gramophone. No, a German Jew. But I'm sure we can think of something. A number of the boys started to call out Aryan advancements, but Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher waved them away. No matter who created these things, we must defend them against the culture destroyers, yes? For what do culture destroyers do? They burn books, they burn music, 
They rip great art from museum walls. They refuse to teach literature, music, and art to their children. They are monsters. I held my breath. No one spoke. The Nazis had done all those things in the name of preserving the pure Aryan culture, and we all knew it. I gripped the edge of my desk, worried for Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher. Like the Edelweiss pirates, he was finally standing up to the Nazis and telling the truth, and it was going to get him killed. The bell rang. It was time for the first of our five Hitler Youth mandated hours of physical education in our eight-hour school day. The boys in the class stared mutely at Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher as they filed past. They were giving him the silent treatment. The 40, 13-year-old boys in our class had never left the room so quietly. It was spooky. Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher had to notice. Just remember, he called to us, you are members of the master race. It is your God-given duty to bring order to this wicked world by dying for your fear. For the Fuhrer. After school, Fritz and I trained for the Hitler Youth Initiation in an alley near his house. I stood on top of a tallish pile of rubble from a bombed-out wall, trying to practice breathing slowly. Fritz was running sprints up and down the alley, dodging the debris that littered the streets. Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher really put his foot in it today, Fritz said as he ran by. It was hard to talk and focus on my breathing at the same time, but Melcher was a welcome distraction. He's crazy. He's going to get himself taken into protective custody, I said. Protective custody was one of those terms everybody in Germany used with a wink and a nod. When the Gestapo picked you up for doing something wrong, they made you sign a piece of paper officially asking them to take you away. For your own protection, they said. But what you really needed protection from was the Gestapo. I wondered again why Fritz wanted to be in the SRD, the junior Gestapo. So I asked him. Fritz ran in silence for a few moments before answering. For Germany, he said at last. For the Führer, everything I do is for the greater good of the fatherland. It was the party line. Propaganda. Did he really believe that? Even if he did, I felt like there was some other reason he was so determined to make the SRD. He could have been part of the regular Hitler youth without any effort. What was it that made him want to be in the super elite patrol force? A Locked Room Mystery my Zitzfleisch got another workout that night, sitting through another boring state dinner. Part of my father's job was to go to meetings with important government officials, but another part of his job was to invite Nazis to the embassy for fancy meals. The embassy where a Jewish RAF spy was hiding in the next room. It was all I could think about while the Nazis around me talked about factories and battles and the Edelweiss pirates. Simon folded up in that tiny little closet. Had he gotten out again since the air raid that morning? 
Had he had anything to eat? Had a chance to go to the bathroom? Suddenly, I realized everyone was looking at me expectantly. Someone must have asked me a question. I... I'm sorry. I'm not feeling Vera, I said. May I please be excused? My mother gave me a look from the other end of the table. I knew what that look meant. The best way to keep Simon hidden and safe was to pretend that nothing was different. To smile and laugh and be the good little Hitler youth at the dinner table. But she took pity on me with a sigh. Take your plate, monsieur, she told me. In case you're hungry later. Take a plate for Simon, she meant. She knew exactly where I was going. I collected my plate and my drink, nodded my apologies to the Nazis at the table, and went for the hall. His German is so good, I heard a woman say as I left. If I didn't know you were Irish. I did the German look, saw no one was watching, and slipped into my father's study. I put the food on his desk, locked the door, and went to the corner with the secret room. Simon, I whispered. It's Michael. I found the hidden latch that opened the bookcase and pulled on it. The bookshelf swung open, and Simon pulled himself to his feet, unfolding his lanky arms and legs like a map. Boy, am I glad to see you, he said. I have to see a man about a horse. He hightailed it to the private bathroom off my father's study, and I waited while he relieved himself. We have to be quiet, I warned him when he came out. Ma and Da are hosting a dinner party. The dining room's crawling with Nazis. Foxes in the henhouse, eh? He said, falling on the food I'd brought him. There's no potatoes, he said around a bite, joking again about the Irish and their love of potatoes. Didn't you hear? I said. There was a potato famine a hundred years ago. The truth was, even though we were in an embassy and could afford the best of what was available, the war made food as scarce here in Germany as it was back in the British Isles, and we both knew it. Did you get inside his house? Simon asked between hungry bites of bread. He meant Fritz, of course. The jet fighter plans. I shook my head. But I think I'm getting closer. We trained after school. After we did some exercises, I taught him how to fight. Fighting? The other Irish pastime, Simon said. After drinking, of course. We wouldn't have gotten so good at either one without the English as neighbors, I told him. Simon lifted his cup of tea to me in salute. He enjoyed our verbal sparring as much as I did. I smiled. The other Catholic families we had known in Dublin were big, lots of sons and daughters, and in my daydreams I had an older brother who would joke with me, wrestle with me, stay up late with me discussing deep thoughts, defend me when the bullies ganged up on me in the schoolyard. For a moment, I imagined Simon like part of our family, saw a future long after the war where we were great friends who got together in London pubs to talk about our jobs, our families, what books we were reading. I finished The Golden Spiders, I told him. Simon swallowed down a too big bite of bread. Oh, really? Not too painful then, I take it? It was great, I said. And it really had been. It was about a boy in New York who sees a woman in a car call for help. 
a woman wearing earrings that look like golden spires. And he goes to the famous detective Nero Wolf and his assistant Archie Goodwin for help. I like Archie a lot, I said. Wolf's smart, but he's a dark. Simon laughed. Yes, he is. What was your favorite part? We talked about the book for a few more minutes while Simon inhaled what was left of the food and drink. I think next, he said, going back inside the little closet with all the forbidden books. We'll try something by Agatha Christie. He scanned the shelves, looking for the book he wanted. A locked room mystery. He smiled and gestured at his tiny apartment. Seems appropriate. Or no, wait, here. The Maltese Falcon. You'll love this one. Suddenly, the doorknob to Da's study turned. The door cracked open. I flung the secret bookshelf door closed on Simon and threw myself backward against it to make sure it was closed as someone knocked and stuck his head inside the door. SS Obersturmführer Trumbauer. It was one of the Nazis from dinner. SS Obersturmführer Trumbauer, the man I'd sat beside at the automaker's dinner. A man whose job was to find the Jews still hidden in Berlin. Hello? SS Obersturmführer Trumbauer said. I was looking for a telephone. My heart raced and my chest heaved as if I'd just run a marathon. I could have sworn I locked that door. Ah, there's one, Trumbauer said, spying the phone on my father's desk. He went to it, picked up the receiver, and told the operator the number he wanted. He watched me like a cat while he waited. I just came in to find something to read, I said. I held up the Maltese Falcon, then realized it was a banned book and quickly hid it behind my leg. This was a disaster. Had he seen the title of the book? SS Obersturmführer Trumbauer smiled faintly. You really do look piquant, he said, still staring at me. I could feel myself sweating from the roots of my hair. He looked down at the empty plate of food on the table. But at least you have your appetite, Buck. He was playing with me. I was sure of it. He knew Simon was here, and he was playing with me. I started to panic. What should I do? Call for my mother? And what would she do? Drug him, too? An SS official at a state dinner at the Irish Embassy? Yes, Trumbauer said into the phone. His call had been put through by the operator. One moment. He looked up at me. If you would excuse me. He wanted to be alone. To talk on the phone or to search for Simon. I peeled myself off the bookcase and walked stiffly across the room. I hope you feel better, SS Obersturmführer Trumbauer called to me as I left. We need more boys like you to join our cause if we are to succeed. But I didn't feel better. I felt worse. And I wasn't going to feel any better until I was sure Simon was safe. Admittance denied. Penance with the words fight, sacrifice, and triumph emblazoned on them fluttered in the cold February breeze. The day of the Hitler Youth Initiation Tests was bright and clear. 
the gray clouds of winter parting to reveal an almost blindingly blue sky. It had been two days since the dinner party. Two days since I was sure SS Obersturmführer Trumbauer had come to my DAS study looking for Simon. But if the Nazi had gone looking for him that night, he hadn't found him. And in the days that followed, the Gestapo hadn't knocked down our door and come tromping in to arrest Simon or us. Maybe in my fear of getting caught, I was imagining things. But my visits to Simon in the interim to talk books had been shorter and more cautious. SS Obersturmführer Trumbauer's words echoed in my ears. We need more boys like you to join our cause if we're to succeed. If I had really believed in Nazi Germany, if I had really thought, the way some Germans did, that Adolf Hitler was sent by God to save the German people and rule the world, I might have believed today's beautiful weather was a sign, an omen. I might have believed this was what they called Führer weather, the way the rain and snow and clouds seemed to miraculously disappear any time something important happened, like the annual party rally in Nuremberg, or the Berlin Olympics in 1936, or whenever Hitler gave a speech, as though God was winking at Nazi Germany. But I was pretty sure God didn't have anything to do with Nazi Germany. Fritz and I stood together in line, waiting to enter the testing ground. Did Fritz really believe the Nazi propaganda? And what about all these other boys? How many of them really wanted to be Nazis when they grew up? And how many of them hated all this nonsense but had to join because it was the law? You never knew the real Nazis from the fake ones, and you couldn't exactly ask... Everybody had to pretend to be excited about the initiation, even if they weren't, for fear of the SRD spies who walked up and down the line. The junior Gestapo that Fritz was so desperate to join, and me along with him. The boy ahead of us in line was stopped by one of the SRD. Apparently his father had been heard making jokes about Hitler in a beer hall one night, and neither of his parents were members of the Nazi party. The young folk boy made excuses, but the SRD boy cut him off. You will not be permitted to continue in the Hitler Youth until this situation is satisfactorily resolved, the SRD boy said. Admittance denied. I thought the boy had gotten off lucky, but he ran away in tears. Either he was one of the true believers, or he just knew he had no future in Germany if he wasn't in the Nazi party. Fritz gave me a horrified look. Getting kicked out of the Hitler Youth was his worst nightmare. I was next. I hated Hitler and the Nazis, but I still held my breath and prayed I wouldn't be sent away. I shouldn't have worried. My parents couldn't be in the Nazi party because they were foreign diplomats, and I could trace my family line far enough back that I was declared genetically pure enough. Fritz, too. We were in. All we had to do now was pass the tests. Unfit to live. First up were the intelligence tests, which we both passed easily. We recited facts about Hitler's first glorious yet illegal attempt to overthrow the German government in 1923. Quotes from Mein Kampf. 
evidence of the Nazi biological theories. More propaganda about how the Fuhrer had saved Germany from the humiliation and economic depression of losing World War I. I remembered all of it the way I had remembered the words and numbers on the Project 1065 blueprints with only a glance. It made me sick to my stomach to repeat all the Nazi lies as facts. It made me want to scream that none of it was true and every brown-shirted boy among us was the world's biggest joke. But I had to remember why I was doing this. To get close enough to Fritz to see the rest of those plans. The physical tests were much more demanding, particularly for Fritz. Each Hitler Youth candidate had to meet minimum requirements in different events, and SRD candidates were expected to be among the best. We had to run 60 meters in 12 seconds, long jump 2.75 meters, and throw a softball 25 meters. I did all of these with ease and spent the rest of the time rooting for Fritz. He struggled to meet the minimums, but he was running, jumping, and throwing faster and farther than he ever had before. He had a wild look in his eyes, like he refused to fail, like he wanted this more than any other thing he had ever wanted in the world. I wondered again what was driving him to not just be promoted within the Hitler Youth, but to want to be in the SRD. Most everybody else dreamed of ending up in the Air Hitler Youth, the special youth division of the German Air Force, where you got to fly gliders and train to be a pilot. One boy was even weaker than Fritz. He clearly had asthma, and by the time we got to the gymnastic test, he was so out of breath he couldn't go on. He begged for another chance, begged for time to get his breathing under control, but the Hitler Youth boys in charge of the tests were merciless. You aren't fit to be a Nazi, they told him. Which means you are unfit to live. I saw a flicker of doubt dull the wild look in Fritz's eyes as the asthmatic boy ran away, gulping down tears. I knew Fritz was imagining himself failing the physical tests and sobbing all the way home. He was so wound up about all this, I worried he would kill himself if he didn't make it. I put a hand on his shoulder. Come on. I told him, we've trained for this. You can do it. Both of us can. Fritz nodded, and the steel came back to his gaze. He had done better than either of us had expected, but we both knew he wasn't in the clear yet. The real test for me was still to come, the dive off the two-story tower into water. But the real test for Fritz came first, the boxing test. The Nazis' second favorite sport. Fritz and I watched as two boys punched and jabbed at each other in a little makeshift boxing ring. When kids weren't performing their physical tests or cheering for their friends, this was what they all came to watch. Boxing was the one thing where you could demonstrate the glorious spirit of aggression and overcome your fear of pain all at once. After invading defenseless countries, it was the Nazis' second favorite sport. It all comes down to who's a pick to fight you, I told Fritz. One of the two boys in the ring was bigger than the other and was giving his opponent a right beatdown. The boy in charge of the pairings and evaluations was our old friend Horst, the sadistic boy who'd been the leader of our Jungfolk group. 
He smiled like a donkey as the big kid knocked the little kid to the ground and kept beating him while he was down. Horst hated Fritz for his weakness and was sure to give him the biggest, meanest opponent he could. Something in the boy on the ground went crunch from a blow from the bigger boy and the color drained from Fritz's face. Just remember what I taught you, I told him. Keep your legs apart so you don't get knocked down as easy. When you fall down, it's over. Keep your weight on your back foot. Turn sideways so there's less of you to hit. Tuck your chin, keep your elbows in, and your hands up. No hooks, no uppercuts. They take too long. Short, straight jabs. Three days wasn't enough time to teach someone how to really fight, but I hoped it was enough for Fritz to at least survive. That's all he was hoping for, too. He took up the stance I'd taught him and practiced a few jabs while the previous loser was carried out of the ring. All right, let's see who's next, Horst said, consulting his clipboard. Ah, Fritz Brenner. His eyes lit up with anticipation of violence. And who will we choose to fight you? His hungry eyes swept the crowd stopping on the biggest and toughest-looking boy of them all. He was a head and a half taller than Fritz, with arms thicker than Fritz's neck, and a crooked nose that said he'd been in more than his fair share of fights. I thought I heard a squeak come out of Fritz. Fritz Brindler? Your opponent is? Horst announced, drawing it out. Michael O'Shaughnessy. An easy fight. I was stunned. Me fight Fritz? No. That's right, Mick, Horst said, giving me his donkey-toothed smile. No more fighting little three cheeses talls battle for him. Now he has to fight you. I thought Fritz would be freaking out, but he just nodded at me and climbed calmly into the ring. Then I realized why he was so unfazed. Horst had made a huge mistake. He thought we were going to beat each other senseless, but now we could take it easy on each other. We would put on a good show, each get in one or two light jabs, and then we'd be done, and Fritz wouldn't have to take a beating from one of the animals who smelled fresh blood. We tied on our boxing gloves and circled each other, pretending to look for openings. I nodded and smiled slightly at Fritz to let him know I understood. Bam! Fritz hit me with a hard right jab that snapped my head back and made me see bright spots in my eyes. The boys around us cheered and laughed. Watching the Irish Mick get beat up was second only to watching the little runt Fritz get beat up. This was high entertainment. Bap! Bap! Fritz fired another right jab and followed it up with a left, just like I'd taught him. But this time, instinct took over, and I blocked the shots with my gloves. What are you doing? I whispered. Fritz didn't answer. He came at me again, raining a hail of punches on me. Bap, 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 bap. He never punched hard enough to get through my defenses, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Fritz was throwing everything he had at me. Any idea that we were going to take it easy on each other was out the window, and soon everybody on the field was clustered around us, jeering us on. I kept my gloves up, 
defending against his attack without taking a swing, and the crowd booed me. Just what I sought, Horst yelled. The mix soft. Looks like he's not going to pass his boxing test. I heaved an exhausted sigh. They were going to make me hit Fritz, and it would be easy. He was already falling back on all the bad habits I'd tried to drill out of him. I waited until he dropped his gloves and reared his arm back for a long, slow hook, and I popped him once on the nose with a sharp left jab. I held back, not wanting to hurt him, but he was so small and so surprised he staggered back. The crowd roared. They were loving this. I gave Fritz a look that said, Okay, cut it out. But he didn't get the message. He flew at me, even more furious now, gloves flailing. He had abandoned all the things I'd taught him by now, and was just beating on me wildly. It was easy to duck away from, and the boys booed again when I didn't take another punch. Fritz grabbed me around the shoulders the way boxers sometimes do when they're tired, locking up my arms. I thought he was just taking a breather, but he'd been trying to get close to my ear. Over the jeers of the crowd, I heard him whisper, We can't show weakness. You have to fight me for real. I pushed him off me and stared him down. He couldn't be serious. Why couldn't we just spar with each other for a few minutes and be done with it? Why did it have to be for real? Fritz came at me again, this time remembering some of what I'd taught him. He peppered my face with jabs, and I kept up my gloves. But then he got in a hard uppercut to the gut that I couldn't block in time. I doubled over in pain, and Fritz went for the top of my head. I put my hands up trying to protect myself, but I was too winded. He was getting in too many good shots. The boys in the crowd were cheering him on and calling me every name you could think of, and a few more I'd never heard before. For two years, I had been the only Irish boy in my entire class at St. Paul's Grammar School in London. And did I mention the Irish hate the English and vice versa? Every day at recess, I had been dragged behind the gymnasium and thrashed by some hulking lout of an English boy while all the other boys hooted and hollered and laughed at me. And then, one day, I fought back. I was like Fritz at first, all desperate anger and flailing arms. I got myself a right proper beatdown that day, for a bully enjoys nothing more than when you try to fight back and fail miserably. But I got up, wiped off the blood, and fought back the next day, and the next and every day I got a little better, learned a little something more. And one day, I gave as good as I got, and the boys stopped dragging me behind the gym for my daily beating. Because a bully hates nothing more than when you fight back and win. The constant pounding, the jeering, the familiar queasy feeling I had from the punch to my stomach, it was like being back in the schoolyard at St. Paul's taking another beating behind the gymnasium, and I didn't take beatings like that anymore. I met Fritz's jaw with a vicious uppercut, striking him with all the righteous strength and brutal rage of a boy being bullied. His head snapped, his eyes rolled back in his head, and he toppled forward, hitting the ground at my feet like a sack of potatoes.